Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Meredith Yuckman. Meredith is the Executive Director of the Hope Center at Poland, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you're welcome. I am very interested in hearing more about yourself and your organization, the Hope Center at Pullen. I will call out right now that the Hope Center at Pullen is an award-winning organization. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Your organization won an award for small programs in the last year's AOI awards program. So I just wanted to put that out there right at the start and congratulate you for that. Thank you. Thank you. We were super excited and it was just such an honor to receive the award and such a joy to share that news, especially with our staff, because so often our staff go underappreciated and unnoticed in this field. And so it's just been wonderful to share with everybody and all our supporters. Oh, good. And I'm glad that your organization was selected. Just as a reminder for the listeners, it is a peer-judged awards program. So it's not us at AOI going through the applications. These are individuals who are out there doing the work that you are doing, recognizing you for doing a great job. And I think that just is an added layer of credibility (laughs) to the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, enough of that. Enough of the gushing. Let's get started. So Meredith, if you would, could you please share a little bit about your own personal background and what was the path that took you to working with young people aging out of foster care? Yeah, absolutely. I have always been drawn to adolescent youth development. I find that when I look in my own life, I think of the mentors that I had at that time and the effect, the lasting effect that they had on me and the trajectory of my life, that's just a time when you're 16, 17, 18, you're making a ton of decisions and decisions that really do set you, can really set you on a path. And that time is something that can be very special, very nerve wracking, exciting, all of those things. And so my career has really been focused on working particularly with at-risk youth. That's where my heart is. And it has been almost 10 years that I've been working exclusively with youth who are in the foster care system. But it's been 20 years or so that I've been working with youth, some of whom are in the foster care system. So yeah, it's a little bit about me. Okay. Let me ask this question. I don't think I've asked this in any podcast before, and and it seems so obvious. But just to make sure we're all on the same page, how do you define at-risk youth? Hmm. That's a great question. So for me, I think that it is about youth who do not have all of the supports in place that can be so easily taken for granted for those who do have them. So for young people who have two supportive parents, there are things that those parents do, and not even just parents, but that extended family, whether that's grandparents or aunts or uncles, there's a whole network of relatives that really pour into that really pour into young people as they're growing up and as they're transitioning to adulthood and that can be in all kinds of ways with not just financially and with other kind of tangible resources 
but also emotionally. There's a lot of adults that are trusted to be guides and to help in decision-making process, but also emotional support as well. And so for you who don't have all of those supports, they have a lot that they have to do on their own. And in the way that our society is set up, it is very difficult to do. And so for me, it's about adding in supports that we can so often take for granted. Yeah. You made me think of the term protective factors, mm-hmm. right? These are the young people that don't have the protective factors that other youth may have. Like the supports, in essence, that might be another way of saying supports is those protective factors. Yes, absolutely. Well, then how did your background lead you to the Hope Center at Poland? What was that trajectory? Well, when my family moved down to North Carolina, my husband and I came down here actually for his career. I was leaving behind a community of youth. It was very difficult to do. And I felt when I found the Hope Center, I was hired to actually start our teen programs and to run our programs that assist our 13 to 18-year-olds while they're still in foster care. That was such an exciting time. We were building these programs and just really getting to know these youth. And it was just a really lovely experience. In doing that was about four years of running those teen programs. And then I became the executive director of the organization. And now I've had the privilege of seeing some of those same teens that I've worked with graduating from our transition program. So we've got 23-year-olds that I've known since they were 15 or 16. And to be able to watch their journey is really something that is very special to me. Yeah, that's fantastic that you could see them through the whole experience, if you will, the whole learning experience. Yes, yes. And guide them through it because that's one of the things that I'm a big believer in is providing the supports younger. Right. Right. It's if your program supports young people aging out of foster care and you're getting them at 18, 19, 20, that's great. They need those supports. But how much better if you have a chance to work with them at 13, 14, middle school? Exactly. What's the biggest advantage, would you say, in starting your work with these young people while they're still in foster care at age 13 or so? Our teen programs, part of it, the outcomes that we're working towards are preparing those youth for their transition to adulthood. So we're attempting to build those independent living skills. But in addition to kind of the skill building that comes through these programs, really underneath that and what I find to be so valuable are the relationships that are being formed. Because again, with foster youth in particular, they do not have a lot of adults that they feel that they can trust. And so if our staff can get to know them, win their trust, and then help be that guide in that decision-making process, then that can be a huge advantage for that youth. And then As we so often see with young people in foster care, when they turn 18, many choose to leave the foster care system. And in North Carolina, we have the 18 to 21 program, so they can voluntarily choose to extend their time. But a lot of young people, there's that bond with their biological family that is so strong that they want to go back and potentially take care of family members or see if their family members are able to help support them. Or they're just so done with the foster care system that they just want to go. And like so many 18-year-olds, they overestimate how prepared they are and they underestimate how difficult it's going to be. 
And so for the Hope Center, because we have built relationships with them while they're still in foster care, if once they get out there on their own, they discover that things are more difficult, things aren't working out the way that they had hoped, they know where we are, they know who we are, they have our number, they can come and they can walk through the door and get the support that they need. For us, that's a key component of kind of building this continuum of support that starts prior to that transition out of foster care and extends beyond until they're ready to graduate and have that safe and stable adulthood that they deserve. Yeah, you know, it's a tough situation because like you're saying, so many young people have different reasons for wanting to just go, right, after they emancipate. So the question that crossed my mind is how can we help open these teens' minds or their eyes to how prepared they are versus how hard it's actually going to be? Is there a way to do that before they go out on their own, maybe before they even emancipate? You almost need that trial and error, but how can you do that with support at such a young age, right? Not out on their own and having them just realize it on their own saying, oh, I got to come back. How can we reach these young people and open their eyes sooner? So there's two things that come to mind first, and it both ties into building trust with the young people while they're still teenagers. The first thing that came to mind was our youth advisory board, which we have had in place now for about four years. And these are our young people who are in our transition program or they are graduates of our program who want to stay connected and continue to give back to the youth who are coming behind them. One of the opportunities that our Youth Advisory Board has is to come to programming and events for our teenagers and to talk to them about the choices that are ahead of them and the things that they wish they knew before. I think that there is no better person to share that with than the young people who have lived that transition themselves. So I think the more that we can give our older youth the opportunity to share with the youth who are younger, the more likely the younger youth are going to be able to hear it. I think that is probably the best answer. (laughs) Because, I mean, think about teenagers in general, right? They'll listen to their friends before they'll listen to their parents often. Yes. It's just the way it is. And it always has been. And it probably always will be. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it is for youth who are in foster care as well as youth who are outside of foster care. It's just part of the teenage experience. Yes, it is. It exactly is. So you have that element hearing from peers. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just meeting these individuals. But the other element of that influence is that they have lived experience going through this recently. It's not somebody who's 50, like myself, I aged out of foster care, but I'm 55. That was so long ago. That was a whole other era. So they don't want to necessarily hear that from me, but hearing it from somebody who's just been through it, that has much more of an influence. Yeah, absolutely. So building in some kind of peer sharing opportunity sounds like that may be key to helping young people understand that, you know what, maybe staying in extended foster care isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, let me back up a little bit about the organization. When was the Hope Center at Pullen started? Yes. So we were founded in 2008. And when the Hope Center began, it was actually to support, there's a church, Pullen Memorial Baptist Church. They serve the homeless population a meal twice a week. So, and they they were getting 75 to 100 people a meal. And when they built an addition to their church, that included a fellowship hall and a chapel. 
they tithed that space, which is such a fascinating idea. They took the square footage of the addition and they said, we're going to take 10% of that square footage and we're going to add office space. And we're going to found a separate 501c3 nonprofit. We're going to give them this office space for free. And they can, the idea was that the Hope Center would serve the homeless population that was already engaged at that site, but to provide some additional supports. So that's how the Hope Center started. And then it was about four years later that the mission of the organization narrowed to focus specifically on youth who are transitioning out of foster care. And one of the reasons that they made that transition is because in getting to know the people who were homeless, they were beginning to see that many of them had a history in the child welfare system. And we know nationally that one of the statistics we're always quoting is that one in two people who are homeless have a history in child welfare. And so the folks leading the organization at the time said, well, if we can get upstream and if we can begin working with youth while they're still in foster care, while they're making this transition, then maybe we can prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place. That's great. I love that shift. I've heard about the prison population and the percentage of individuals in prison who had experienced child welfare. I don't know that I've come across the statistic for homeless. You would think I would have by now, but half of the homeless have had some connection with child welfare? Yes. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. It's very troubling. I know that it's something like 25% of young people who age out of foster care experience homelessness. I believe that's the right statistic at some point within the first three years of aging out, which is a huge number. Yes. And I've heard, you know, we've looked at some research that shows that it can be between 40 and 60% who experience homelessness before the age of 24. And that for each time somebody becomes homeless, their chance of becoming homeless again goes up significantly. And so we have a lot of our youth who are experiencing homelessness multiple times. I'm just amazed that nothing's been done more to this point (laughs) (laughs) to try to address this because it's so huge. Are we only just becoming aware of the seriousness of this? I mean, it seems like these statistics have been out there for ages. Yes, they certainly have. And it is it is frustrating that there is not more that has been done or that has been done, you know, earlier. Where we are, and I think around the country, there is a huge spike in homelessness with housing prices and rental prices continuing to go up and more and more people who are ending up homeless. And of course, our youth are experiencing those same pressures. And so it is quite difficult. Think about, you know, as an adult, how frustrating it is as rent is going up, as interest rates are going up, right? All of that is going up. If you're just aging out of foster care and maybe you have a job, maybe you don't, you need a place to live. There's no way that you could get started on your own. Now, I started out with a roommate, right? So many of us do. But have they learned how to go about that process to even find a roommate and getting a place to live? Many haven't. Many haven't been prepared for that kind of process. Oh, it's so frustrating that it hasn't been fixed yet. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we're doing what we can, right? We're trying to fill that gap. Yes. One of the resources that we're utilizing, I guess it would have been in 2021, the Foster Youth to Independence vouchers were released by HUD. And that has a lot of potential. And they were 
those vouchers were shaped by youth with lived experience in the foster care system and aging out of the foster care system. So I really appreciate the process that they used in developing these vouchers. And for those who aren't familiar, the housing voucher means that our youth will pay 30% of their income towards their rent. And then whatever the difference is between that amount and the fair market value, the voucher will pick that up and the landlord will receive that from the housing authority. So it's a great resource. But what we have right now in Raleigh and Wake County is there are not enough apartments where these vouchers are being accepted. So we still have just the shortage of actual units to be able to house our youth as quickly as we would like. So we have seen the wait from when a young person starts their voucher process, we used to be able to get them housed within three to four months. And what we have seen in the last year is that it is taking more like seven to nine months for that process to take place. And so if a young person is living in an unsafe situation, it's just way too long. So it is something that as a community and as a nation, we need to look at. So are you saying that the landlords can choose whether to accept it like Section 8? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. They don't have to. Right. Part of the problem there might be the misunderstanding or a generalization of what somebody coming out of foster care would be like as a tenant. Yeah, there are certainly some stigmas that our staff will address in trying to recruit additional landlords. And that's that's something that has always been there that we've had to address. The new problem that we were facing in 2022 is that the rents in Raleigh were rising They were 20% higher than from the year before. And the voucher amounts had not increased. The value of the voucher only changes once a year at the beginning of the year. So the voucher amounts did not anticipate how high the rents were going to be so that we were then having to ask a landlord to house a young person coming out of foster care, which again, sometimes there's an unfair stigma attached to that. And then in addition to that, we're asking them to accept what is a lower rental rate than what they could get if they just rented it on the regular market. There are not many people who are going to be willing to do that. (laughs) Yeah, HUD's made some changes to the algorithm that calculates their voucher amounts. And so we'll see as we go through 2023, you know, how things match up and if there's a better alignment there. But yeah, it's been an uphill road. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm glad that HUD is being responsive to that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This is so interesting. I love this conversation. (laughs) I want to get back to your program. (laughs) So I'd love to understand like the different services that you offer. You had talked about relationships. Help me understand maybe the different service areas that you provide young people aging out. Sure. So in our teen programs, so those that target the 13 to 18 year olds, we have an internship program where we match our teenagers with internship experiences at businesses, organizations, nonprofits, all throughout our community. And then we pay our teens during the summer to work at these other locations. So we're setting it up so that they've got a paid internship experience. The host site doesn't have to handle any of the liability or the payroll issues or any of that stuff or raise the funds to pay them. Then our young people are going through and applying. It is just a dress rehearsal for a regular job. They're doing their resume. They're getting coached on their interview. They're doing an interview. 
They're getting feedback from the host site supervisor, as well as from our staff. We facilitate those conversations at a couple different points throughout the summer so that they can continue to be learning and growing about what they enjoy and what workplace expectations are. So that we do every summer. And then we occasionally will have opportunities for internships outside of the summer as well. We work in partnership with Wake County Human Services to do life skills classes every week during the school year. And so this is an opportunity for all of the teens who are in foster care in Wake County to come and see their peers. Sometimes this is their only chance during the week to see their siblings. It's a chance to be with their peers and enjoy some community. We have a meal together followed by a workshop that is on one of the eight targeted outcomes that our state has set. And, you know, that can be programming around healthy relationships. It could be programming around some of our career development programming happens there. We do college visits as well as prepare for college applications, all kinds of different stuff through that. And then we also have tutors. So we match our teens with tutors who will go out to the foster home and work one-on-one with the teens. Or now we have all these virtual options as well, since we've all got these new skills post-COVID. So they could do that virtually as well. And one of the new things we're doing is partnering with NC State so that becoming a tutor is actually a work-study opportunity for NC State students. So they can be paid to tutor our youth. And for some of our youth who are in, especially in the higher math and the higher sciences, This is a great way to make sure that they're getting the support that they need. So yeah, that's worked very well. And it's also helped with some of our English learners to be able to have somebody who's bilingual to be a tutor with them. So that has been great as well. Well, you had mentioned eight outcomes that are set by the state. Yes. Life skills outcomes? Yes. And how are those expectations set by the state? Are they set with the foster care system in North Carolina that all of the young people are supposed to have these life skills before they leave foster care? What does that look like? Well, that's a great question. So they are set by the state and the goal is that programming in foster care is going to promote these eight outcomes. There was actually just, I want to say two years ago, three, three years ago now, There were only seven outcomes, and there is an organization here in North Carolina called SESO. It's Strong Able Youth Speaking Out, and it is made up of and led by youth who are transitioning out of foster care, and they do a lot of advocacy in the state. And so one of their advocacy efforts was around adding an eighth outcome, and that outcome is normalcy. In addition to getting that outcome codified within the system, There were also laws that were passed to be able to provide a more normal teenage experience to youth who were in foster care. So previously, if a young person wanted to have a sleepover at their friend's house, there were so many barriers to that that it was almost impossible. There'd have to be a home study done by the social worker for the house at which they were going to be staying with background checks on everybody else who was going to be staying there that night. And it just was It was terrible. There were also barriers to being able to participate in sports at school, along with all kinds of other barriers that were in place. And so the Normalcy Act that the youth advocated for helped to provide more agency for the foster parent to be able to make decisions for the foster teen, just like any other parent would be able to make a decision for their own teenager. And so that was a fantastic step forward for our state. 
and made a huge difference in our youth's ability to participate and do things that that teenagers need to be able to do for their own health and well-being. Right. Oh, I love that. I'll do a search online or, or maybe if you can send me a link to these outcomes. I can absolutely send you a link. Yes. Yeah. I'll add it to the resources links under the podcast. Okay, great. So anyone who's interested, will have the link there and you can look into those eight outcomes. Fantastic. Sorry, I think I interrupted your flow about your services and programs. Oh, right, so. <laughs> right, right. Well, so in addition to our team programs, the other branch of our organization is the transition program. And so that program begins serving youth when they turn 18. And then our youth are eligible for services up through 24. But if a young person is parenting, then they are eligible through the age of 27. And our transition program, we connect each youth with a transition specialist, as we call it. And the first thing, right, when a youth comes in, we're, you know, from the beginning, we're going to find out, okay, what are your needs? What are your goals? And a lot of times there's a lot of urgent things that need to be taken care of right away. A lot of the time that is housing. In our transition program, housing is a huge thing that we are focused on because we follow the housing first model. We think you got to have stable housing to be able to build on it to reach your educational and career goals from there. So our transition specialists work with the youth to establish stable housing and then also to work on whatever their other educational career goals are. And a lot of times there's transportation support that needs to happen as well. Step one is we need to get a copy of your social security card or your birth certificate or, you know, all of that kind of stuff as well to kind of be able to even get these other processes started. There's so much that happens <laughs> in our transition program because, you know, really our young people across the spectrum of all the people that we serve, there's just a lot of different needs with housing being one of them and with our vouchers being taking longer and longer to get leased up. We've started to create some partnerships for some transitional housing. So that while our young people are waiting to lease up on a voucher, they have a safe and stable place to be. And so we're partnering with a couple other organizations to be able to provide some housing in that interim period as well. It's exciting to get that in place, but it is something that we are always looking for more of. Right. Are all the youth in your transition program, are they involved in some kind of housing or do you have some young people who you service who have other living arrangements? We do have young people who are in multiple different living arrangements. We have some who have a roommate and who are affording their apartment on their own. In those cases, we're working with them to say, okay, what are your education goals? Are there, or, you know, if you've attained your educational goals, what are your career goals? We also have some incentives for our youth to engage in mental health services different ways to connect them to that support if they need that. We want to make sure that our youth are really stable before they graduate from our program. You know, one of the ways we do that is just with frequent check-ins to help with that sense of, okay, if there's a problem that comes up, let's talk it out, let's problem solve, let's see what we can do to make sure that things that for other people are just going to be a bump in the road aren't going to turn into a crisis because you don't have a safety net. You know, we want to make sure that we're there and can head that off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you had mentioned a transition specialist role. Yes. Is that like a mentor or is that a different kind of role? Mentoring is a big part of it. Our youth really kind of, you know, look to their transition specialist for that emotional support that they need and for that guidance. But the transition specialist also does a lot of everything. There's a lot of connections to other resources. So each of our transition specialists has a focus 
One focuses on employment. One runs our youth advisory board. We have somebody who is our parenting specialist to provide the support the babies, toddlers, and young children of our youth need. And then we've got our housing navigator who is always looking to recruit additional landlords and housing opportunities as well. That's sort of how we have that structure to try and bolster all the kind of critical areas during that period of life. Okay. How many young people do you have that you work with, say, at any one time? Is there an average number? Well, we are growing. We've continued to add staff. At any given time in our transition program, right now we are serving about 50 clients. And then I think we've got about 15 children of those clients as well. That's where we are right now. We expect that by the end of this year, will be closer to about 64 clients at any one time. And then that's just in our transition program. That doesn't include our teen programs. Right. And clients, just to clarify for the listeners, that's your word for your youth. Yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. Because different programs have different terms. So yes. Yes. <laughs> that's great. Is there an opportunity for the young people there to build relationships with each other if they're involved you know, kind of at the same time? Yes. Every month we have a group over lunch that is our life skills group. We have lunch together and then do programming. And we just had one last week. And, you know, we had three of the young people stay in the whole afternoon (laughs) just to hang out with each other, which is always great to see. And then beyond those opportunities, then we have our youth advisory board as well, which is open to our youth in the transition program. That's a separate meeting that happens once a month as well. And that board, in addition to doing some leadership opportunities with our younger youth, they also help guide our organization as all the different decisions and things that are happening within the organization. We try and run those by the youth advisory board. And then they also receive some training in leadership opportunities and public speaking as well. Okay. What would you say is the impact of having the young people provide input into what's happening at the organization and maybe even how it's structured or how things are done? I don't want to say a lot of organizations do that. They might get feedback, but the advisory board approach really is advising the organization, it sounds like. And so what's the impact of having that engagement? I think for us, it's made our organization so much stronger And it will continue to help us better serve our young people. For us, we don't want to run on assumptions about what we think our young people need. We want to make sure that we're meeting the needs as they actually are. One of the most recent examples of that, we were seeking feedback for what we can do to better support our clients who are parenting. And in talking with them, They talked a lot about the trauma that they were experiencing during the actual labor and delivery process and feeling so alone in that process, like just actually very alone in the hospital room and then feeling like their voices weren't being heard by the medical team that was assisting them. So we have actually later this month, four of our staff who are going to be certified as doulas so that we can offer that as something to clients if they want to have that kind of support through that labor and delivery process so that it is not as scary and as traumatizing. We know that when we look at the outcomes for mothers, we know that we've got Black mothers who don't have outcomes as good as white mothers when we're looking at birth rates. 
And so to be able to potentially serve our clients who are also disproportionately black, to be able to provide that service and hopefully end up with some better outcomes through that birthing process would be amazing. I love that. Yeah. This is the first time I've heard this being done. I love it. Yeah. Having that opportunity. We don't know anybody else who's kind of merged these services either. But again, that's something we didn't think of. And it is something that's come out of conversation with the youth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think everything stems from awareness. You have to be aware of an issue, of a problem to address it. You know, being alone and feeling isolated and scared during childbirth never crossed my mind. Right. Yep. But when I hear that, I'm like, well, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) of course it would, but it's just, it wasn't on my radar. But I love that you've taken that action based on their feedback on that. That's great. I wish you luck with that. I hope it goes well. Yeah. Well, thanks. I look forward to sharing how it goes once we get things in motion. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on to kind of a bigger picture conversation about the foster care system, is there anything else that your organization does for these young people that you want to throw out there? Well, one of the other initiatives that we're working on right now is we're working on a partnership with one of our local HBCUs, St. Augustine's University. And there is a residence hall on campus there that is underutilized. And we are hoping that soon we will have renovations underway so that our youth can use that space as transitional housing. And they'd be living on campus. They would have access to mental and physical health services. And they would also have access to the cafeteria if they so choose. So we're really excited about the potential there and are looking forward to getting our young people moved in. We'll know more about our timeline, I'm hoping, on Monday. So we'll see. That is fantastic. So is it an older dorm type of situation that they just are not using any longer? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. What a great way to use that space. I mean, it's just sitting there not being used. Right. Yes. Yeah. We're really excited about it. That's fantastic. I love that too. I love this. I love your program. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I'd love to keep talking, but unfortunately we are time constrained. So I did want to have a short conversation about the foster care system in general. From your experience working with young people aging out of the foster care system, what are a couple of opportunities of improvement? Where can the foster care system, right, bigger picture system, What can they be doing better to help get these young people ready for life on their own after foster care? Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it's a big question and it is a big system. And it's also a system that's really different. There's just nuances place to place that are very different. So I think one of the things here in North Carolina that I would like to see changed is that in North Carolina, and I believe about 12 other states, There is a fee that biological parents have to pay when their children are in foster care. And one of the reasons that would prevent reunification would be if those fees have not been paid off. And there's a lot of details to go into in that particular policy and how it's administered. But The way that it can shake out is that a reason, non-payment of those fees can be a reason that the court uses to permanently terminate parental rights. And that is problematic and something that, you know, specific to North Carolina and about 12 other states, something that I would really like to see changed. 
the federal government is advising states to not do that, <laughs> but it is still a practice that is happening and one that I hope that we can not be doing anymore. Yeah, this is the first I've heard of this kind of fee. Yes, a lot of people I don't aren't love aware that. of it. Yes, no, <laughs> and it it's bad. It is a fee that is specific for parents who are receiving some type of federal assistance. So it's a fee that is literally put on only the poorest of the poor families. So it's very, yeah, it's very problematic. Wow. Well, I'm glad that's something that is, like I use the term on the radar all the time. <laughs> I'm glad that that is at least on your organization's radar. And Is there a way for you to advocate for that? Is that being addressed? I was just talking to a child advocacy organization earlier this week and wondering if they would be willing to take that up as one of their initiatives to change, to lobby our legislature. Yeah. Something done. Maybe say so. And I suggested that they work with say so on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But is there anything else that you've thought of about the foster care system and where there could be improvements? I know one of the things that specifically our county's done is two great initiatives. One is to really target fathers. Fathers are often overlooked by the foster care system when they're searching for a place for a child to live. And so they've had some good success in the initiatives that they have to reach out to fathers and then provide, you know, have that become a placement option with their biological father. There's also another thing that Wake County is doing is specifically around some additional trainings to try and support the cultural identity of the youth who are in foster care so that if there is a like a cross-racial placement, that the foster parent has some ways to make sure that the youth has connections to their culture and their identity even while they're in a family who does not share that culture or that identity. Mm -hmm. I know in my era, when I was young, it was not uncommon for, say you spoke Spanish and you were placed in a foster family that did not, that they would say, well, you can't speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, we don't want to hear it. Just don't speak it because the parents were worried about them talking, you know, about the parents in front of them. They wouldn't know what was being said. Although I understand the intent, the result is horrible. Yes. Right. They should maintain their language and that connection to their culture. So I think that's important. I agree. That's just one language is just one aspect. Of right. Course. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, those are fantastic ideas. I appreciate your thoughts on that. I know we have to close up here. Before we do, though, is there a place where people could go? Let's say they wanted to, I don't know, donate to the Hope <laughs> Center at Poland or just find out more. Is there a place online where people could go and find you? Yes, absolutely. We have our website is hopecenteratpullen.org and they can Google us and find us that way as well. And uh, we would love to have people checking out the organization. Please do. Everybody go look at their website and everything that they offer there. There will be more details, I'm sure. I just want to thank you, Meredith, for being part of this podcast series. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. I wish you all the best in your initiatives, the things that you're already doing and what you're trying to get done. And I'll keep an eye out and see how things progress. I'm very interested in following you and continuing to see your success. Wow. Thank you so much, Lynn. This has been a fantastic conversation. I have absolutely enjoyed it and very much appreciate all that you are doing to try and get 
get our best practices and help us learn from each other so that we can do a better job by our youth. Thank you. That's definitely part of what we're trying to do. Best practices, bringing organizations together, breaking down geographical barriers. I think that's important in this day and age, especially with the technology that we have. There's no reason why we can't all be partners in some form or fashion to help these youth. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Meredith. And for those of you who have listened to the podcast to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them at agingoutinstitute.org and you can click on the podcast link in our menu or pretty much any podcast distribution site. You will find us there and you can load the apps and listen to our podcast that way. So thank you very much. Until next time.